0: Thank you so much, Elder Wing, for leading us in our service. Thank you to the children for reading for us. And indeed, there was a small effort I was thinking. We haven't met the youth. We haven't met the children for a long time, about two years now. Good idea to just get different parts of the body of Christ to be doing so. And I think I know who the children are, if you want to know. They are future pastors. The way they speak is so good, right? Never mind. (laughs) Houses, Homes, and the Meaning of Houses and Our Homes. I visited a man's house overseas once, and uh, the moment you walk in, it would hit you that his house is totally extraordinary, out of the blue. He was a Coca-Cola fan. And so you can guess, the furniture of his house was shaped like Coca-Cola bottles. The sofa covers, the cushion covers, were all with Coca-Cola prints. And his whole house was adorned with his collection of Coke bottles and Coke cans through the years. You walk into his washroom, the toilets, and there's a Coca-Cola shaped sink. And unbelievably, you walk into the toilet and there is a a Coca-Cola shaped toilet bowl. Imagine sitting on that. You enter and depart that house and you could say, this man is totally obsessed. This man is totally caught up with Coca-Cola. They say one of the most photographed houses in the world is called the Pole House in Victoria. And if you don't Google it down later, it's built beside the beach on a very slender tower. And on top of this tower is a squarish a squarish house, right? All four sides glass. You enter into this house, and what hits you? What's the message that hits you? This person loves views, and especially views of the sea. And so you can't mistake that it's one of the most iconic houses of the world. And this one was featured in Amazing Homes in Latin America, I think, where in an effort to build sustainable homes, he built his entire house of rusted metal. So the flooring is rusted metal, the walls are rusted metal, outside is rusted metal, inside is rusted metal, furniture is made of rusted metal, and you walk into the house and you say, no thanks. Imagine it's so cold, it makes a beautiful statement of sustainability, a beautiful statement of environmental friendliness, but it screams, this house, this is a house. It could be a showroom, but it's not a home. Contrast this to Tae Wei Ling and her husband, Kelvin. How many children do they have? She has seven children in her home, four of her own biological children, an adopted child and two foster children. You walk into their homes, Calvin and Huilin, and you, you won't say Coca-Cola everywhere. You won't say views, views, views everywhere, or rusted metal everywhere. You walk into this home, it's children, children everywhere. And this is the difference between a house, a showroom, and a home. And the few key reasons why Huilin and Calvin, both 43, have always been keen on fostering. And they say, and I quote, We would be very heartbroken when we read news about children being abandoned or abused. And that's why, through the years, she has fostered, they have fostered 10 kids, and the number is counting. If you do not know, Hui Lin and Kelvin are part of our church. So, houses, homes, and meaning. You walk into this place unique in human history unique to Israel's life. And this place called the tabernacle. And everything screams, not Coca-Cola, not views, 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 not environment, environment, not just children, but everything screams and shouts, holiness, holiness, holiness. Why? Because the tabernacle was a symbol of God, of the true and living God, who is a holy God, his presence and His purpose with His holy people. To fully understand this, we have to trace the meaning of this holy God. And He's calling to His people, beginning with Israel, to be holy as part of His purposes. This portion we've covered in our Bible studies, what we call our discipleship groups, is six chapters. As you read the six chapters, six chapters is already challenging enough, but there are six chapters with very detailed fine print, of God's instructions to build the tabernacle, which has the courtyard three parts, the holy place and the holy of holies. So in all honesty, if you were to read these six chapters, Exodus 25 to 31 by yourself, what might happen to you? This might happen to you. What on earth does this have to do with my life? Six chapters of detailed instructions of building the tabernacle. And so, we would have not time in 40 minutes or so to address all six chapters. So, I draw for you the big picture all the way from beginning to end of Exodus. So, are you ready? So, let's look at the slides and so come on. So, God's redemption story from this point onwards. In chapter 19, He says, I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself so that you'll be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. If you keep my command, keep my covenant, and obey my voice, there is a conditionality to being God's chosen holy people. No other nation has been chosen, but God's people, God Israel has been chosen. And so the sections here can be summarized as God's covenant, and then God's covenant leads to God's law. So they are graced to obey the law. They do not keep the law to be grace, to earn grace with God. Very important. And then do you remember in Exodus 24, the covenant is formalized. The covenant is sealed by blood. And why is blood so important? You should remember from last week. How far will God go to save us from idolatry for the worship of Him? He will go as far as shedding blood on your behalf so that you do not suffer and I do not suffer the holiness and the wrath of God for being proud sinners and foolish sinners against Him. And so that was displayed in Israel's life. And from this portion onwards that we are dealing with today, it's God's tabernacle instructions. Exodus 25. This is what it means to be graced by God, to His covenant people. This is what it means to keep the law, not to earn His grace, but because you've been graced to be holy. No other nation has this honor and privilege. The presence of God, the purposes of God, you know what it means? That means if you live with the presence of God and the purpose of God, you do not wake up each day and say, why am I here? You do not wake up as a teenager and say, should I slash myself? You do not wake up today and contemplate suicide ideation. You wake up today and say, there is a God. And this God made me in His image. And we turn against this God. And this God reaches out to redeem us. That's the beauty of this. If there is no God, why wake up, let alone ask why live for another day? And so, the privilege and the honour of God's presence and taking part in His purposes. Exodus can be understood in two halves. If we back away our lenses and say, okay, I understand this portion. I understand this portion all the way to chapter 31 at least. But what's the big picture of the whole book of Exodus? The two parts in Exodus is actually this. But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you, that I have sent you, whom you have brought. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. This was God encountering Moses, so that Moses will encounter Pharaoh, so that Pharaoh will let my people go. And so what's the big picture of Exodus, the story of God to us? There are two parts. Firstly, the first 18 chapters is how the covenant and compassionate God redeems His people from slavery to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the symbol, the representation of a man-made world and man-made empires. Where our isms from communism to, to capitalism today, we think we will make a utopian world without God, a paradise without God. And we find our identity in the politics, in the economics, in the education, in the worldviews of this world. Egypt controlled the world at that time. Pharaoh was to be feared and all the gods of Pharaoh was to be feared. All his fertility gods, all his prosperity gods was to be feared. And who was Israel? A bunch of slaves, a bunch of losers who so happened to have a god And when Moses goes to Pharaoh and says to Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. Pharaoh basically says to him, should I listen to the God of losers? The God of losers must be a loser of a God. My gods have made me the most powerful being on planet earth. And you are telling me to let your God's people go? You could be kidding. And redeemed from slavery to Pharaoh the oppression of this world, redeemed for worship of the Holy God. So friends, very important that your life and my life fits into this salvation story. You and me have been redeemed from, that's part one, from the idols of this man-made world, from the hype and the fake views and values of this world that we sell our children and sell our souls to. And we are redeemed for the worship of the true living. And here, the holy God, symbolized in the tabernacle, that will be the centerpiece of the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's important, friends. So, let my people go is a very huge thing. You know how the book of Revelation ends? Revelation ends with this. Come out, come out, my people, from Babylon. Come out, come out, my people, from Babylon. From Babel to Egypt to Babylon is the man-made world. So, Israel was formerly born servants, B-O-N-D, born servants to Pharaoh. Slavery to idols that determine our identity, our security, our sexuality but actually deforms our image of God. Now Israel, by the redeeming love of Yahweh, becomes born servants to Yahweh. He says, my goodness, from being born servants to Pharaoh, to born servants to Yahweh, what on earth is the difference? And here's a tagline from my lecturer in his book, The Faith of Israel. By being born servants to Yahweh, born servants to God, comes true freedom. Freedom is when you live your life in sweet surrender and in slavery to God. That's freedom. Freedom is one of the Western world's icons. The freedom to choose your identity, the freedom to choose your sexuality. And that's why we are speaking of dysphoria, transgenderism, LGBTQ, just one area of our life where we think that choice is my ultimate freedom to choose ultimately determines my identity, ultimately determines my sexuality, ultimately determines my happiness and my arrival in life. Freedom of choice is actually idolatry. I was speaking to this girl who I it from a good liberal arts university in America, liberal arts college in America. And she was sharing her story. She She really was looking forward to it and the the freedom from being away from parents, the freedom from being away from a very restricted, controlled democracy called Singapore. Did I just say that? Controlled democracy of of Singapore. And she bought into it and she fell in love and um, had a boyfriend and the boyfriend dumped her. And as she shared about the boyfriend who dumped her in this liberal college, there was the choking and there was the tearing. You just have to read in between the lines of how deep their relationship was. And I had to lean over and say to her, It's okay. God understands. We all have a vulnerability to buy into the isms of this world. You may not believe it, but Pastor Chris was once young. And I also bought into that world. It's okay. It's all right. There is a new beginning. Redeem from, redeem for. Redeem from our own worlds of happiness, our own worlds of identity and sexuality and destiny arrival. When I have this person, I will have made it, I will be complete. It's a lie. That's why being born servants to Yahweh in Israel's experience would be freedom for Israel. Freedom no longer to a man and man-made empires, but freedom to God who made men and women in His image. And to Him we must all bow. So I want to ask you as a first application, which direction are you travelling? Are you travelling from bondage to the height and the fake news of this world, the bright lights of our man-made world, the bright lights of modernism and post-modernism, the bright lights of the, the freedom icons and idols of this world, the, the choice that we have. If you're traveling from that to freedom in God, you're traveling in the right direction. Some of us could maybe longer born into Christian families, think that this, this thing about God and Christianity is too restrictive, too much. Maybe like this girl to, who went to a liberal arts college, too, too simple, too cloistered, too cocoon, too pure. And we're traveling from that to this. From the worship of God to the idolatry of self. As you sit here today, if God stopped you now, and ask you, Chris, which direction are you traveling? Can you tell him? God knows your heart. He knows whether you delight more in being a born servant to this world or a born servant to God, in whom there is true freedom. The the Hebrew word for worship is actually service, homage. There are few words. But when you worship God, you serve God. You serve God by being a born servant to Him. And then we must move on. Move on from what? Move on now from the big picture of Exodus, that is freedom from and freedom for, we now have the Tabernacle Instructions. And the Tabernacle Instructions basically has two messages to it. How the Holy God approaches His people is the focus of the instructions in Exodus 25 to 27. Then look at the bottom part from Exodus 30 to 31 is how unholy people can approach the holy God without being judged, without being punished, without being struck dead by Him. And sandwiched in between is how the priests who are themselves unholy are made holy by God to make this worship of God possible. So as you read these six chapters, it's not as random, it's not as disconnected for us as you think. It's a very important message for us. How does God approach His people? Those instructions are given in the instructions for the making of the furnishings of the holy place and the holy of holies. How we approach God, how unholy people can approach God, it's given instructions from the court, and that is from the altar to the basin that is there. And so, are you ready for this? And so, the tabernacle instructions, but before we get that, you would have studied in a Bible study and look at photos, and you can still Google them, different drawings of how the tabernacle may have looked like. The tabernacle is basically tabernacle. If somebody asks you, you went for a sermon today, right? You had Baba study last week. It's all about tabernacle. What is it? Can you define tabernacle in a sentence? Tabernacle, you haven't defined it, is actually the moving temple, the portable temple. This was the portable, movable temple of God, signalizing his presence and his purposes for his people. Until, uh, until they travel from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land, and at the heart of the Promised Land, Jerusalem, where they will build a permanent temple to the Lord there. And so it's always placed at the center of the 12 tribes, and she's to build this temple. The tabernacle dimensions, please don't fall asleep here, right? 150 feet long, 75 feet wide. So the width is half of the length. So do you think in feet or meters, never mind, you go and convert, 150 by 50 by 75. Total size is about 11,250 square feet, the tabernacle. How big is that? That's about the size of ARPC at 25 Adam Road, which is about 15,000 square feet from the fence right up to the end. So imagine the tabernacle is roughly that size, right? So what do you see? The entrance, it has the tabernacle has a curtain fence. A fence made of curtains, right? It's held together. This fence around the peri- perimeter is held together by 60 pillars. And the 60 pillars are made of bronze with a silver cap on the top with to hold the, the curtains together as they are strung together. The entrance to the courtyard. Is 30 feet wide? 30 feet wide. Right? And the entrance to the courtyard is 30 feet wide. And it has colors of blue, of purple, and scarlet. Let me mention the colors again. How many of you like blue? A few. How many of you like purple? Fewer still. How many of you like scarlet? Do you know what it is? I'm told the colors of purple. Right? Blue, purple, and scarlet are the colors of gods and the colors of royalty. The colors of divinity and the colors of royalty. The colors of God, Yahweh as God, and the colors of God, Yahweh as King. More about that later. So as Israel enters to worship God, right, this is what she must do. She's entering the presence of the Holy, Holy, Holy God. So what do we learn? The centerpiece of of this Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of Testimony. Where do we put the Ten Commandments? And then here at the Ark, it had what we call on top a mercy seat. So the Ark had two functions. It was both a container of God's law and it was also the seat, the throne of God as king. And it was guarded by two cherubim. And you read cherubims, the first time you met it was in Genesis, met them was in Genesis chapter 3. And when you read the rest of the Bible, cherubim are angelic beings guarding the presence of God and circling the throne of God. You read that from Genesis to Revelation again and again. So, the Ark of the Covenant function as a container of God's Word, God's law, and a seat of His throne. You pull that together with the color of the fence, the curtain fence. You pull that together for the curtain entrance, and when Israel enters, they enter to worship. If the Ark contains the law of God, and the seat is the rule of God, they enter to worship to be ruled by God by obeying His word. You want to write that down as the definition of worship? Worship is you responding to the rightful rule over your life. So when Israel entered the tabernacle, the ark was a symbol of, I now enter and remember that I'm actually entering to listen to God and His word rule my life. Ten commandments, how to love God with all your heart and mind and soul. The rest of it, how to love your neighbor. And then the fine print is, if this happens to your neighbor, if your your neighbor does this to you, then you must do this. That's what it means to worship God. You keep His covenant, you hear His voice. And so the finishings here, in the innermost place, symbolize the presence and the rightful rule of God over them. And then in the holy place, the three furnishings are the bread of presence, God among His people, the 12 tribes, the lampstand, God's word, God's light, into their lives and through them to the world, and the altar of incense. Pleasing to God? Not so clear. Some people think that the altar of incense, incense, is to hide the presence of the priest before he enters into the Holy of Holies. So is it an aroma to God by the time they finish their sacrifices, or is it to shield the priest one last time before he enters? And by the time he enters, he's totally cleansed by the blood. The meanings are there for us to explore, but it's undeniable. Even the metals that are used, Bronze silk, bronze from the courts, silver, and finally gold for anything within the holy place and the holy of holies tells you, approach the holy God with care. You're approaching the presence of the most important VIP in the world. As you approach the most important VIP of the world, please know that you have to be fitted out. You have to make eligible and appropriate to enter into His presence. If you ever, How many of you have been invited to a palace? You haven't? I pity you. I've been to many palaces. Ah, I haven't of course. <laughs> right? You just watch them approach the Thai king. Then no part of your body must be above Him. So you crawl all the way literally into His presence and that's before a mere man. And now the present Thai king is one that the people know that his life is full of scandal. Sexual scandal, financial scandal. If I said this and this sermon was played in Thailand, I will never be able to go back to Thailand for a holiday. Why bow like that before mere man? That's bowing before Pharaoh. You bow like that, you enter in the presence of the holy and the perfect God. And so the tabernacle is how God approaches us. How God approaches us, He consents, not condescends, that he who, could, he who could fill the whole universe and the universe would not be big enough for the person and the presence of God and His holiness fills everything, He consents for a symbol of His presence to be there in this 11,000 square feet. In there, in that place where he will speak firstly to Moses. And then in Israel's history, the priests enter the Holy of Holies once a year with something chained to their ankle. And if they are not holy before God, they'll be struck dead and they have to be pulled out. Because if the high priest doesn't make it, nobody in Israel's life is going to make it. So approach not with care but the approach with reverence. It's very, very important. And then the priesthood. The priesthood, the important things about the priesthood. There's a very strange thing as you read this about the priesthood. What is it that we read? You should take the other ram, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. You should kill the ram and take part of his blood, and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron. And the tips and the tips of the right ears of his sons. And if you Aaron and his sons, you say, Oh, yuck. And on the thumbs of the right hands, and on the great toes of the right feet, and throw the rest of the blood against the side of the altar. So it's not just that the furnishings had to be splattered with blood for cleansing and to be made right, but the priests offering this. And you look at that, why ear, why hands, why feet? And one commentator suggested this. Why ear, why hands? And maybe the priest, as representative of the people, mercifully, graciously call into God's presence in the tabernacle. He is to represent, this is what it means to be holy. You are to have consecrated years to listen to God's voice above all the other voices of this world. Stop listening to the idolatrous messages when you wake up first thing in the morning, bang, 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 bang. All those things in social media. What's, how good is that for you and your soul and your holiness, consecrated hands to act in holiness? That may this day, this hands bring blessing to people, not curses to people. May these hands give, not take away, and consecrated feet to take you to places you should go and to turn you away from places you should not go to. Could this be the meaning? That the priests are to represent the people. This is what it means to be in relationship with the Holy God. If there is some truth here, friends, then you and me need to ask ourselves, This is our 24-7 worship. What on earth have you been listening to the whole week? If somebody pulls out your phone and see how many hours, and not just the hours, you could have, mine is all five hours Bible study. Will my phone actually say that? That almost every website I go to is a Christian website giving me solid gospel input about God and what it means to evangelize, about God and what it means to disciple people, about God and what it means to grow in sanctification of how to be a better pastor. What about you? If God was to ask you for your phone and He tracks your time, what is it you have listened to? What is it you have watched that has helped you deepen your love for God, deepen your devotion to God? Deepen in you being consumed by God, caught up by God, not consumed by this world, and tripped up by this world. Three things about the priests, if you read these instructions in chapter 29, Exodus 29, three things. They are washed by blood, they are clothed, and then they are anointed. The priests themselves have to be washed. And then their clothing is totally defined. You do not enter with simply sukkah suka shorts and t-shirt. Just enter. No friends. You have to enter as if you're meeting royalty and divinity. From the curtains, curtain fence, right up to you're entering to meet royalty and divinity, ultimately in Yahweh, the person of Yahweh. And unless God anoints you, you would have no chance to send, as a priest, Aaron and his sons. The New Testament picks up on these three things. Washed by the blood of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Hebrews 10, verse 22. Clothed. Now we are clothed in righteousness, not in our own works. Romans 4, verse 3 to 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 3. Put on your new clothing in Christ, which are the virtues and anointed. We just read from First Peter. We are now called the holy people of God, a holy nation. And so we must, we must, as the people who ultimately are cleansed by the blood of Jesus, understand this, what it means. What it means. There's a very strange thing here. Called this so as they walk in, there's the altar of incense. And in chapter 30, there's the census text. And then there's the bronze basin. No time to cover all. But what struck me was this. Why is this census text? And what's this census text about? The Lord said to Moses, When you take a census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord. When you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. I carry on reading for you. Right. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less. Then the half-shackle, when you give the Lord's offering to make an atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and give it for the service of the ten. It's a very strange thing. But when you pull it together, what do you think is happening here? I think what's happening here with the census tax for Israel and their newfound experience with God is that please learn to internalize holiness. Please learn to personalize holiness. Have you pondered the holiness of God? When you pay this half-shekel, you personalize this. That you are convicted that this is the true and the living and the holy God. And once you're convicted that He's the true, the living and the holy God, Yahweh is not all the deities of Egypt, not all the deities of Canaan. Then you make a choice. So you're convicted, you make a choice and you make a commitment from your conviction. Every time the priest enters the tabernacle on behalf of the people, every time they pay the census tax, it's for them to internalize and personalize holiness. And so where does that take us? To understand this, God's tabernacle instructions, the meaning of the tabernacle, just allow me to walk you through. It's Yahweh's earthly dwelling or palace, the Hebrew word, Actually, can connote that the tabernacle is God's chosen earthly palace. Yahweh is enthroned there in the midst of his people, the 12 tribes. And it symbolizes two things about God his holiness, right? His, his nearness, without, comprom- without compromising his holiness. So, his nearness is what we call the imminence of God. And the only reason God can, the Holy God can draw you near is not because hey, nobody, nobody entered his kingdom. Nobody came out. God opened a business called the kingdom of God and he opened it by the tabernacle, but nobody came in. So he dropped his standards. Lah, so everybody could come in. No, friends. The nearness of God, the intimacy of God is offered to you and me, not by the dilution of God's holiness not by the corruption of god's justice the nearness of god is offered to you and me because of the mercy of god because of the grace of god but the mercy of god never cancels the holiness of god which must necessarily keep you apart from god so that's why last week i said to you that this relationship with god is the most dangerous relationship God's holiness is a threat to you. You and I, in our sin, in our rebellion, in our stubbornness, in our sin, are an offense to God. And the twain shall never meet. So here in the tabernacle, God dwelling with His unholy people made holy through a sacrificial system, through a tabernacle system, which will become the temple system, is where you see both the nearness of God And then the transcendence, the holiness of God. And Why is this important? If you come with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3, if you come with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3, and you might read this, you would read this. And Hebrews chapter 3, what does it say? Are you there with me? I'm going to be reading here. Hebrews chapter 3. I'm going to pick it up from verse, uh, Hebrews chapter 3. I'm going to pick it up from verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace. Let us then approach the throne of grace. Can you fill in the words with me, for me? Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Pull the things together from the Old to the New Testament. The Old Testament was a very paradoxical invitation. Israel, come and know me. Israel, come and worship me. Israel, come and fellowship with me. But God's invitation everywhere, no entry, no entry, no entry. It's a little bit like if COVID-19 rules are relaxed because the situation is better, right? And Elder Wing says, Chris, we have not had a meal together. Can you and Mona please come and have a meal together? And I'm looking forward to that, aren't you? Just to host people again in our homes, without fear, without favor. And he invites me, Wing, to his home. And then he gives me the address. By the time I arrive at his HDB block in Yishun, he puts there from the car park, no entry. The lift, no entry. Outside this house, no entry. That's what happened to Israel. I invite you, Yahweh invites you into His holy presence, but do not enter, do not enter, do not enter. So you're invited, but not welcome. You're invited, you're welcome. But never forget who you are approaching. The holy God. The Holy God. And so, what does that mean? What does that mean for us? We can approach God freely, but you mustn't ever approach God carelessly. You must never approach God recklessly. You must never approach God irreverently. You must never approach God nominally. You must never approach God half-heartedly. You approach God boldly, but you do not approach God brazenly and proudly. There's a very huge difference, my friends. I just want to tease out those words to you, all the way from the theology of the temple then, to the theology of the temple in Hebrews chapter 3 for us. Yes, we are invited to enter into God's presence with confidence. Please take notice, with confidence in Christ and true Christ, is not to enter with arrogance with presumption. Thinking that you were born into a Christian family, I can enter. Thinking that I serve as a musician here and I've led 10,000 songs, I've got 10,000 reasons to enter. Thinking that I've been elder or deacon or Bible study, I'm thinking that you enter carelessly, you enter recklessly, you enter presumptuously, that any of those things, I was a BB captain once, I was actually BB chaplain once, You enter for all, you try to enter all those reasons. You are not entering. I want to ask of myself and ask of you. Carelessly, you might begin carelessly, recklessly. As God's people, remember we enter, the tablets are there. I enter to worship God. I worship God by obeying His word. I enter now through Jesus to listen to the Lord Jesus speak into my life. Over the past week, have you listened to Jesus speak to your life? You haven't opened the Bible the whole week. You have become careless with God's Word. You haven't prayed to God the whole week. You don't feel any worse for it. You've become slightly careless. Before long, you have missed services. Even now it's totally available, own time, own target. You don't even have to make the effort to come to ALPC at Adam and ALPC at Bishan and future ALPC at Dengar. We can just do all things virtual. And even that you drag your feet and even that you scrub. Maybe you're a bit callous. Maybe you're a bit reckless. And once you stay away from Christian fellowship, it won't be long before Satan traps you. You are as far away from God as you could never imagine. Enter freely does not mean enter carelessly. You got that? So when was the last time you reflected on how not to sin against God? When was the last time you reflected on how not to provoke God to anger for the sins of thought and word and deed? When was the last time you pondered deeply, reflected deeply in your life to avoid God's rightful wrath against you. When was the last time? When was the last time you pondered how to please God with my heart, with my thoughts and my words and my deeds? When was the last time you thought of how to love Him, of how to love your husband and wife without judgmentalism? How to raise your children without stereotyping them and saying it's the end for you? When was the last time? you pondered this. There we enter without soul-searching confession. And there we enter without heartfelt repentance. Too many of us now have our devotion time and quiet time just suka-suka on sofa, on bed. You need to get right that Jesus has done this, but it's not enter enter freely at the greatest cost of jesus you are now in communion with the holy god israel had to understand that in our life we as new israel have a greater reason because it's not the blood of animals that was shed for us it's the blood of the lord jesus christ so remember hui Lin and kelvin remember and kelvin who already had four biological children Adopted one, fostered two, over their lifetime, fostered ten. Remember them? And I got this from Salt and Light. And I told you they are members, right? And so uh, let me pick it up for you. In a span of six years, right, Prilin had six pregnancies, of which two ended in miscarriages. After the six pregnancies, she decided she didn't want to, she didn't want to have any more pregnancies, and so she her husband decided she'll go for tubal ligation. And tubal ligations, basically you tie up the Philippine tubes to, to stop the uh, fertilization from happening. And she says, right, the next two years I was miserable. Why? Because there's something within her God-given nature that she wanted to be mother to more children. But now that I've gone through the tubal ligation, I could not give birth anymore. Right? I cannot really explain it. But through many people and articles, God showed me that I had taken birth control into my own hands and tempered with his design. So she and her husband decided to go and undo the tubal ligation. And then she got pregnant. But the two pregnancies she had were ectopic pregnancies, potentially fatal to the mother. So emergency surgery was required. Both her polypene tubes were lost and both babies died. The painful experience taught her a lot of things, Huilin said. Regarding fostering, it taught me to treasure every baby that God puts in my path. And this is the punchline that hit me when I read the article. God turned that giant mistake that I made in trying to take family planning into my own hands into something beautiful, preparing me to love all these babies that He loves and put into my home. So, what stopped her? What stopped her? If I held back because of my own pain, then a child out there will be deprived of a foster family. No pain could prevent you from holiness. Pleasure could prevent you from holiness. And holiness is to love God and to love others. When was the last time you did some soul searching confession? When was the last time you did some heartfelt repentance? here's a beautiful couple in Christ. And here she is thinking about it. But time has raced on, covering six chapters. It actually ends with the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is whatever you do not know, God created in six days. And now the whole goal of redemption is relationship with God. And is crowned with the Sabbath. So redemption not so much imitates creation, but brings creation to the next level. And the In Hebrews 4, it tells us of another sabbath that will rest with God. And what is sabbath? Sabbath is not simply separation from work. Sabbath is actually imitation of God. Fellowship with God. Why work, work, work without enjoyment? Why work, work, work without delighting in God? And so God invites His people to tabernacle with Him. And every time they do the Sabbath, it reminds them we were created for, we were redeemed for the Holy God. Have you pondered the holiness of this God? Have you counted the honor or privilege of being God's holy people through the blood of Christ? Let's stand and pray. Almighty God, forgive us when we do not understand we do not accept and we do not treasure the honor and the privilege of being your holy people, redeemed by the blood of Christ. As we listen to your word in Exodus 25-31, to 31, we pray for your spirit not simply to enlighten us, but to convict us and to convict us to a choice and convict us to a commitment that you, O holy God, demands and desires that we be made holy and we be kept holy, not by the works of our hands, but by the perfect work of your Son. And in doing so, help us to remember that we are called to enter freely, but it's not a call to enter carelessly, recklessly, nominally, superficially. Forgive us when in our lives, we are starting to become careless and reckless. And we pray that in hearing your word, and being struck by your word, and in being, in being confronted by the Lord Jesus, and being spoken to and convicted by your spirit, you will lead us on this path of holiness unto your glory. Amen. Really? Thank you. There is nothing else left to say to God but to cry out and to sing to him, Holy, Holy, Holy.
1: Holy, Holy, Holy.
0: Then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Spirit of the living God, Spirit of our risen Lord, enlighten us, empower us, quicken us to the holiness of God that must lead to the holiness of our lives. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, for your mission, for your witness, and for your glory Heavenly Father. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you for coming to the service. I'll now release you zone by zone. we start with our zone C. I'll see you next week.